0: Thank you for worshiping with us this morning. It's good to be together, good to sing together. My favorite parts of the service is singing together with all of you. So this morning we are coming to the end of Ephesians chapter 5. And we've spent, uh, this is our fifth week now in this section on husbands and wives. And so we looked two weeks at what the wife's biblical responsibility is. We looked at a week of Christ's example to the church, and then this is our second week looking at what a godly husband is to be and how he is to conduct himself in the home. And I have grown in my understanding, I mean, some of these passages that we talk about might be familiar to you and to me, but until we really get into it and see what God has written down and what he intends and what he has for us, uh, sometimes we can miss a lot. So it's been really good for me to work through this and I've grown a lot in my understanding of what God requires of us as Christian husbands and wives and also what his good plan for us is in this area. And I hope that you've grown in this as well. This section of scripture, Ephesians 5, 22 through 33 stands in direct conflict to what the world would say about this. The world has been on this decades-long course for leveling any distinction between men and women. There's been this this drive to make everything the same, there's there's no difference and don't you dare say that someone is better at something than someone else or more fit for something than someone else. How offensive can you be? Right? I mean, that's, that's what we deal with and years ago, I think that there was this idea that Equality meant that there's kind of equal opportunity. Everybody has the same chance at something. Now it's seen more negatively where if any person has any kind of advantage over someone else, even if it's a perceived advantage, that's inequality because there's no longer a category that someone might be gifted differently, someone might be called differently, someone might have a different makeup that requires them to act in a different way. So when I read this text and when we study through what does a husband do, what does a wife do, how do we function together in the home, you should look at that and say, this is really different than what we hear everybody else. This is very different. And there is a reason that Paul grounds his argument not in some kind of a cultural norm. He doesn't say, well, here's what's going on in Rome. I know the culture, and I think this would really fit the church well right now. He grounds all of his defense of marriage in Christology, meaning the study of Christ, who Jesus is, what he has done. And the reason we should take great encouragement from that is because it does not matter What the culture around us says, our responsibility as people who believe the Bible is to follow this before the culture. And there has never been a time, at least in my life, maybe there has in the past, where this kind of teaching that says, no, hang on, there is distinction between men and women. God has created us differently and it is for our good. Never has that been so unpopular. So as we walk through this and as we're now bringing this to a close we're going to summarize some things we're going to refresh some things but I want to encourage you don't let the voices around you dictate how you think about this. Young people as you're considering marriage or maybe newly married don't let the world shape your idea of that. The veterans in the room who have been married many years don't let the world influence how you respond to your spouse let the Bible do that. That's what the Word of God is for. And it is for our good. So turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5, if you've not done so already. And I'm going to start in verse 28, and we'll read through the end of the chapter. Ephesians chapter 5, starting in verse 28. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Let's pray as we begin this morning. Father, I come in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, who has granted us access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope that we have through him. And I thank you, Lord, for your faithfulness in preserving our church, in your faithfulness in preserving your word and your people, and the way that you have Knit everything together so that at this moment, everyone in this room is not here by accident, but is here by design. That you so work in and through your creation that we are brought together through the prompting of your spirit and through the call of your word that we come and place ourselves in submission to your word. And I pray that this morning now as we have the privilege of looking again at this text and considering what you have for us here, would you call all of us to obedience? This may look different and have different application for each of us, but the principle stands. And so I pray that your Holy Spirit would come and work through your word. Lord, take me out of the way. I I have nothing significant to say if it is not from your word. And so please do the work now that only you can do. Soften our hearts, open our ears. And would you have your way here this morning? We lift these things to you in Jesus' name. Amen. The title of this sermon is The Call of Every Christian Husband. And I think the call of every Christian husband can be summarized in one word, I guess, (laughs) love. Three times in this section, Paul calls the husbands to love their wives. 25, 28, 33. Now we've also seen in the past that this is a sacrificial love. We saw that Christ gave himself up for the church and likewise husbands are to do that. We saw that it is a uh, redeeming love. Christ washes us with his water and the word through the spirit. The husband likewise is called to administer the word of God to his wife. And now today we're going to see two more characteristics of this love that it is a Caring love, and it's also a committed love. Caring and committed. Paul uses this imagery now of wives being cared for by their husbands as they do their own physical bodies. Right? Husband, love your wife as you love yourself. And you might think, well, that's kind of an odd illustration, but let me help and maybe suggest something that'll assist in our understanding. When Paul says that husbands are to love their wives as their own bodies, Here's what I think he means. When you care for yourself, you, you benefit, right? We, we maybe eat a certain way. You might exercise whatever. Think about the things that you do to care for yourself. We eat and drink to, pre- to preserve our life. Like if we don't eat or drink, you aren't going to live very long. You might uh, clothe yourself. Hopefully, all of us do that. You rest You build skills for your work so that you can be productive in the job that God has you. You engage in things you enjoy. All of these are examples, maybe not very significant, but they're examples of the way that we care for ourselves. We have this kind of internal sense of preservation. We want to take care of our own bodies. And I think one of the things that Paul is saying here is that everything a husband does for himself, he ought to do for his wife. Okay, if you invest time in preserving your physical health, doing things to care for yourself, you ought to do the same for your wife. She is not less significant than you are. In this passage, this might also help, I think, Paul uses the word agape for love. Now, an interesting thing about, you probably know, there's there's four different words for love used in the New Testament. There was no word agape before the apostles started writing. What happened was they would look back at Jesus' ministry and what he taught, and they had to come up with a word for the kind of love that Jesus demonstrated. So the word, when Jesus said, for instance, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, those kinds of things, those commands, the disciples needed to find a word as they were writing. So Jesus' word for love he uses is an Aramaic word, which is translated from the Hebrew word, which means to demonstrate. It means a love that is visible. So oftentimes we think about agape love in terms of like unconditional love, which is an aspect of that. But really, I think a better definition is that it's a love that is demonstrated. A love that is visibly shown. For example, in Romans 5.8, Paul says that God demonstrates his agape towards us by sending Jesus to die for our sins. That's a visible demonstration. Or the Apostle John says that the world will know we are Christians by our agape. Well, that doesn't mean they're going to know we're Christians by the unconditional way we respond to them. It means the demonstration of love that the world sees. So when Paul says in Ephesians 5 that husbands are to agape their wives as they do themselves, what we should see is that just as a man demonstrates care for his own body by the things he does in preservation, in health, and all those kinds of things, he should do the same thing for his wife. And in caring for himself, he's not only caring for him, but for her, and for her and him. You get, you get this kind of word thing that Paul is playing with. This is going to make more sense when we get to verse 31. Verse 31. Because the two have become one. So, Paul can say that care for your wife is actually self care because they are connected. We'll get to that a little bit more, but let's keep going for now. In verse 29 and 30, Paul uses these two descriptive words to define what this caring love should look like. Read verse 29 with me again. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. Now when Paul says nobody ever hated his own flesh, he's speaking in generalities. Okay, He obviously knows about things like asceticism, self-deprecation, self-denial, everything he deals with in Colossians 2. He's aware of that. But in general, people don't hate their bodies. You care for them. So don't Look for the exception, just see this as kind of a general, people normally care for themselves. Okay, that's, that's kind of a general principle that he's talking about. And the two words that he uses to define this care are nourish and cherish. So to nourish, let's look at that one first. To nourish means to feed or nurture, to encourage or promote. It's a term mostly used in reference to gardening, Any of you garden, you care for a plant, you do what you can to see that plant grow and produce fruit. Rick Phillips, one of the guys that I read quite a bit, says this, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. The idea is that of nurture and protection. Adam was a gardener. And a gardener's work is to make things grow. Likewise, a husband is to tend and cultivate the soil of his wife's heart. This requires him to pay attention to her to talk with her in order to know what her hopes and fears are, what her dreams for the future are, where she feels vulnerable or ugly, and what makes her anxious or gives her joy. The sad fact is that most husbands have no idea what the answers these questions are for the simple reason that they pay so little attention. The call for nourishing is a call to invest yourself, husbands, in the good of your wife so that she grows. She grows. That she flourishes, she thrives. Not so that she chokes and withers. If a man has a need, he does what he can to care for that need. If you're hungry, you eat. Kind of a basic principle. Husbands, if your wife has a need, you are to do what you can to care for her. To promote her health, to promote her well-being. I mentioned this a couple weeks ago in a slightly different context, but I think it bears repeating here that we aren't supposed to just provide for and care for the big, obvious things. That's part of it, right? You provide a home for your wife. You make sure that there's money to buy groceries, keep gas in the tank, all those kinds of things. But that isn't the end of it, right? I mean, those are important parts of provision. They are not the only parts. That's not all that we ought to emphasize. I think the question is, do you know your wife well enough to know when she needs your encouragement? Do you know well enough to step in at the right time and say, hang on, I, I can tell you're really struggling. Why don't you let me take this over for you? You need to you need rest. You need to break. Do you know her that well? Are you nourishing her, promoting her growth, making sure that she has what she needs to the point where you recognize when you need to step in? You can live in a million-dollar home, but if your wife is emotionally starving for your attention and your affection, you fail as a husband. The main part of provision for a Christian husband is not the physical. It's a part of it. It's not the main part. The main part is, are you encouraging her to grow? Are you caring for her needs? To nourish means to care for her, to intentionally invest in her well-being in every area. Next, Paul says, not only to nourish, but to cherish. This means to value to revere, to esteem. The Greek word that Paul uses here is the word for a mother hen setting over her eggs and keeping them warm and protecting them from the things around. I think the reason Paul uses this word is that as men, I think we are to so value, so esteem our wives that we recognize those areas in which we need to be that protection. We need to be that covering. Just as a mother hen protects those eggs because they are fragile. They're not ready to be out in the open yet. So a husband is called to cover and to protect his wife. 1 Peter 3. Peter's talking about husbands and wives. We've referenced this a couple places here. And in verse 7, he says this. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. Talk about offensive things to say. Why does he say it like that? Why does Peter command us, as husbands, to show honor to the woman as the weaker vessel? Well, I don't think the point here is that he's not trying to point out a woman's weakness, but we have to ask, what do we normally do with weakness? Generally speaking, what does mankind do with weakness? I stole this analogy from another pastor. But he says, think about a football coach. If you're a football coach, you're coaching, and you see that the defensive line has a huge weakness in that player, you're going to run the ball there all night long. We exploit weakness in our natural self. We take advantage of it. And what the command of Scripture is that for husbands, you do not exploit the weakness of your wife. You protect it. You do not take advantage of the fact that she is made differently You protect her. You nourish her. You cherish her. That is the role that God has placed you in. This is not an emphasis on the weakness of a woman. It is an emphasis on the fact that we are not prone to obey. (laughs) We are not prone to honor weakness or to promote it or to protect it or preserve. We are prone to exploit it in our flesh. And God's word says, no. You honor her. You protect her, you nourish her, and you cherish her. These are all the things that as men we are not naturally prone to do, which is why the scripture tells us to do it. We need help here. I need help here. This is what Christ has done for us, which is why Paul says this. No one ever hates his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. This is what he has done. Christ did not see us in our weakness and try to devise a way to exploit that weakness. What did he do while we were weak? He died for us. He gave himself up for us while we were still weak. And even now in our weakness, he continues to love us, to show us grace, to care for us, to protect us, nourish and cherish us. Husbands, you are called to do the same to your wife. Do not exploit the weakness. Protected. The reason that Paul can speak about this self-care being care for your wife and care for the wife being care for yourself is because of what he says now in verse 31. Look at this with me. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. When a man and woman get married, when they enter into this lifelong covenant... That's what it is. It's a lifelong covenant. They leave behind what formerly identified them and they embrace this new identity as husband and wife. Does that sound familiar? It should because since the beginning of chapter 4 of Ephesians we have been talking about what Paul talks about which is leave aside the old self, the old man he calls it, and put on the new self which is in Christ. So marriage is in a way just a specific application of this general principle. When you come to Christ, you lay aside the things that formerly identified you and you embrace your identity in Him. When a man and a woman get married, which is the only two people who should be married, by the way, they leave aside What used to define them, what used to control them, what used to, you know, what identify them, and they embrace their new identity as husband and wife. The two become one. This is what we sometimes refer to as the leave and cleave principle. Now, Paul is not making this up. Again, this is similar to what we already said. He didn't look at the culture around him and say, you know, it'd be really helpful. Uh, if these young people or whoever gets married would just kind of sever ties and come together. I think I'm going to write this in the Bible. He quotes this as a quotation from Genesis chapter 2. Now the important thing is for all you math majors, pay attention, 2 comes before 3. That's about the extent of my math knowledge, okay? But here's why that's important, because Genesis 2 is before Genesis 3. Genesis 3 is the fall into sin and all the consequences that come with that. But this comes before that. This is a principle which from the beginning God has instilled into his creation that a man would leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And the reason that this is so important for us to understand is because of the hesitancy for so many people to to do this, (laughs) to put this into practice. But it is a committed love that we're called to. And part of that commitment means leaving it beside what formerly identified you. Often, when I talk to couples who are newly married or just been married a short time, one of the biggest struggles is that one or even both of them has not fully released themselves from their family. Now, I'm not suggesting that there can be no relationship, no influence, no connection, but it changes. By design, it changes, and it should change. It's not that you never see your family. It's not that you never ask them for help or counsel. But God has made now the two of you into a new family. That you will start new traditions. You will have new ways of thinking about things. And as husband and wife, you will become, for each other, the primary source of advice, encouragement, bouncing ideas off of each other, all of that kind of stuff. Martin Lloyd-Jones has a really great commentary on Ephesians, and he says this, if a man who gets married becomes absorbed into his wife's family, or if the wife becomes absorbed into her husband's family, both of these are wrong and should never be allowed to happen. He's very direct. This is a new family ordained by God. The relationships of love should be maintained with the parents on both sides, but never in terms of deference, submission, or Dependence. See what he's saying? You maintain the relationship of loving your parents. That's a, that's a lifelong thing. That's what we're going to get into next week when we come to Ephesians chapter 6 and the command for children and parents. But parents, you play a part in this as well. And I would just say don't, don't make it hard for your kids to in- obey this instruction by you not letting go by you trying to hang on and still respond to everything just like you did when they were nine years old. They're not nine, I'm sorry. They need to figure out how to make their decisions and to make mistakes and whatever and, and be there to support them. But this is a new family ordained by God and this is what his word says. Now, I just think I need to emphasize a little bit that there, it should never be a total separation. Separation. My kids are you know, high school aged and down. I don't have adult children who are married, but I know from talking to enough people that it is very hard to let your kids go. And for a lot of children, it is very hard to leave. That's all you've ever known. The protection and provision and comfort of your home and then you're leaving that. So I know that this is difficult. And I just want to emphasize that you should not Sever. This is not a breaking of a bond. It is simply forming a new bond. One of the other guys I read a lot says this, the command for a man to leave his father and mother is not a command to forsake them. (laughs) I thought that was a really good word. It is not a command to forsake them. It must be understood in terms of degree. Both spouses will relinquish their primary allegiance to each set of parents and transfer it to their spouse. They remain obligated to honor their parents, to care for them in their old age, to listen to their advice, but the principal focus will now be on their spouse. When you do a marriage ceremony and the dad walks the daughter up the aisle, and the preacher stands up there and he says, Who gives this woman to be married to this man? Her mother and I. What ought to happen is that the dad takes the hand of the daughter and places it in the hand of the groom symbolically showing a transfer of responsibility. No longer is she primarily under his care. She is under the groom's care. This is the way that God has set things up from the beginning. And this is what Paul refers to as a mystery in verse 32. When he says the two become one flesh, it's of course referring in part to physical intimacy, But more importantly, it serves as a picture of Christ's close bond to the church, his great love for his bride. I hope you know this. Everything in the physical world is telling us something about the spiritual life. Everything can be an illustration. And I think marriage is just a very clear illustration of that principle. And this is what Paul says. He goes, "I'm referring to Christ in the church." So the mystery of this is not that it's some kind of, well, we can't understand and we can never know what's going on. The mystery is that God and His providence has ordained things be this way. And He has set up that marriages look this way and men act this way, and women are to act this way, and when it all works together as He has planned, that it is mysterious in a sense, but it is beautiful, because you follow the design. Of God. The email I sent out earlier this week talking about how everything Jesus created on earth serves his purpose in redemption and how he created things, I think, just so they can be used to help his people understand. This kind of redemption and marriage is the same thing. Yes, it was designed in part for humankind, for procreation, for the furtherance of image bearers. All of us bear the image of God and so through the marriage relationship, a man and a woman come together. They commit to one another. After that, they have children together and those children bear the image of God. So there is a natural good consequence to marriage. But more importantly than that, there is a spiritual significance that Paul and Jesus want us to get, and that is the great, sacrificial, committed, cleansing love that Jesus Christ has for his church. It's the main point of this passage. Sure, it gives us help, and praise God that it does, but if that's all you get out of this, you've missed it. This is a picture of Jesus and his great love for us. Paul closes this chapter in verse 33 by summarizing. Right? He says, "However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband." Now, we've already looked at this in great detail for both husbands and wives, so I'm not going to say much more about that. But what I do want to do is I want to close by giving you a warning and an encouragement. A warning and an encouragement. First, the warning. There are two very dangerous interpretive errors that we might make when we read this text. Any text in the Bible, but we're here, so I'm going to apply it here. Two dangers. First one being that you might assume what you, that you know what these words mean at face value without seeing them in the context of the passage. So you might read a word like headship or submission and you automatically start to kind of think in your mind, okay, I think I know what that means. Oh, that's bleh, I don't want to look at that, I wanna do that. But the warning here is to not isolate a certain part or word without knowing what it really means biblically. You might have assumptions, they might be right and they might be wrong. But it isn't up to us to determine if your assumption is right or wrong, it's the scriptures that determine if your assumption is right or wrong. So be very careful not to read one word, presume that you know what it means, and then build your thinking off of that. The second warning is similar. The danger is that we read incomplete parts of this passage. So you might read a passage in here like, the husband is the head of the wife, period. Well, at that point, you can make that say whatever you want. Right? You you could come up with, well, I think that means that she has to obey everything I say or she has to do this or I'm the boss or whatever. You can make that say whatever. But if you read the whole context, you see that the husband is the head of the wife even as Christ is the head of the church. Okay, now we know what we're dealing with. Now we can look at Christ and his example and that will keep us from error, that will keep us from misinterpretation. So the warning is, do not isolate words or passages in the scriptures and then build your whole way of thinking around that tiny little thing. We must read this in its full context to know what God really desires from us and what he wants us to know and put into practice. Now lastly, I want to give you an encouragement. I've been thinking and I, I told a couple of you this over the past couple of weeks but I don't want my only tone as a preacher to be corrective. Oftentimes when we're dealing with passages like this or uh, things on sin or behavior and morals and stuff, there is a level of exhortation. I need to be faithful to the word of God and saying this is what you ought to do. And if you're not doing that, you need to change. That's my job as a preacher, to call you to obedience to the word of God. But that is not my only job and that's not the only tone I want you to hear from me. There are so many couples in this church who are doing a fantastic job living this out and I want to encourage you to keep it up. So many of you set such a tremendous example. Husbands who sacrificially lead your families. You work hard. And wives who joyfully submit to that God-given leadership. And I just want to say that I'm greatly encouraged. We need those kinds of examples in the church. We need to know that this is not just hypothetical. It's not something that you look at in the scriptures and just say, oh, that, yeah, that would be nice, but that's not the reality of my life. And that's true in this church that there's so many of you who are living this out. And I am thankful for that. And I want to encourage you, keep doing that. Keep doing the hard work. I know it's not easy. All of us are selfish. We just want to have things our own way. But that's not the way of the Lord. And so I'm greatly encouraged at what I see. And I just want to say, keep it up. Of course there's room for growth. We all have that. But keep understanding and reading and trying to see what does God have for us. And put yourself in submission to his word and keep up the good work. Strong marriages make a strong household. Strong households make up strong churches. And strong churches is exactly what we need right now. To stand the test of time. To say, you know what? That's not right. This is right. And we're going to stand on this. So keep up the good work. Stand on the word of God. Don't let your opinion be swayed by all the junk outside. Take this and live it out as you get into the world. And God will be honored. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this chapter. Thank you for this instruction. Thank you for your word. I, I have a long ways to go. There are so many times that I do not fulfill the responsibilities that you've called me to. And so, Lord, I repent of that and I ask for your help. And I pray that you would come into this church, come into these people and motivate us towards love for you For his love towards each other, Lord, would we demonstrate the kind of love that you demonstrate? Lord, strengthen the marriages that are here. Continue to impress upon us the importance of loving each other just as Christ loved the church. This is not something that we can do on our own. It is not something that is easy to do. But you've never promised us easy. But you have promised us your help. And so, Lord, we ask for your help and ask that you would be honored and glorified in the way that we live our lives. We give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.